0: Good evening, Church. Grace and peace to those who are able to make it tonight. If you have your Bibles, we're going to take a break in Galatians. I'm going to turn to another letter in the New Testament. Turn with me to the Apostle John's letter, Third John. Third John is the third to last book in the Bible. We'll be looking at the entire short letter today—only 15 verses. The third letter of John, and the title of my sermon this evening, loved ones, is "Together for the Gospel." Together for the Gospel. And once you find your places in Third John, loved ones, towards the end of the Bible, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'm going to be reading the whole letter, but it's not awfully long. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this evening as well. This is what this is what the Word of God says this evening, Church, through the Apostle John. Starting here in the greeting, he writes, "The elder, to my dear friend, Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend." I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health, just as your whole life is going well. For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why, if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself. And we also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write to you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. This is the Word of God, Church. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the grace to gather in your name this Sunday evening. It is a gift, and I just pray that we will never take this gift for granted, Lord, especially with all the freedoms that we have in this country, Lord, that, God, we can freely gather in your name to sing songs of worship to you of what you have done on the cross, King Jesus, and being born all those years ago to come and bring us salvation. Lord, to hear your word preached, Father, and God, to see the faces of our beloved brothers and sisters, I pray that we will never take these gifts for granted, Lord, because, God, these are the means of grace of how we get to know you better, God, so that we can fall more in love with you each and every single day, so that ultimately, Lord... Out of our great love for you, we go out into this world to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all the nations, all for the sake of your glory, so that God, at the end of time when when you have come and made all things new, God, you will just gather all people from all the nations to worship you and you alone. So Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be equipped. Lord, to hear more about you, Lord, and so that, God, you can help us to become more like Jesus. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who hears your word, Father, or stumbles upon this recording, I just pray for their salvation, that they will come to a saving faith in you, King Jesus, that they will be just truly convicted of their sin and just placed their faith in you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, for you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray for myself, Lord, that, God, I will not mess you your word in any way, but that, Lord, it will just be your word going to your people, that this word will just Feed your lambs and that God they will just be edified and be sanctified and just walk away these doors more refreshed so that as they enter this upcoming week, they'll just all do it. They will tackle it this week, Lord, for the sake of your name. So Lord, we thank you for this day, this night, that we able to gather a second time. And we just lift up all these things with well, Thanksgiving in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see the church. As American culture enters this upcoming Christmas season. It's a perfect time for you all to reflect upon the birth of Jesus Christ, or as some theologians call, the Incarnation. And so I'm personally taking the time to reread a little classic book on the Incarnation. I got a little hand copy right here by an old dead guy named Athanasius. And yet, who is Athanasius, and why does this guy matter tonight? Well, Athanasius, he's a North African theologian in the 4th century. Like I said, he's an old dead guy. During his life he found himself in great controversy regarding an ancient lie called Arianism. Named after the North African pastor Arius, he taught that there once was a time when Jesus, the son of God, did not exist. He believed that Jesus is fully God as a created being. As a result, the church called for a members meeting at the city of Nicaea in 8325 to discuss Arius' false teaching. In conclusion, the church condemned him as a false teacher and embraced the biblical teaching that Jesus is fully God. However, controversy continued after Nicaea, for many Roman emperors embraced Arius' false beliefs, and despite Athanasius being under great cultural pressure to deny his beliefs, he continued to defend that Jesus is fully God. As a result, he was exiled from the Roman Empire, not just once, but five times over the time span of of 17 years until the church fully embraced what Athanasius always saw taught in the Bible, that Jesus is fully God. And the only reason he was willing to sacrifice everything because the full divinity of Jesus is a gospel-centered issue. As Athanasius himself once said that Jesus, the Son of God, he added humanity to himself so that he may redeem his people back to himself in perfect worship. Only then can he truly flourish as a human being by experiencing communion with the Creator God as the source of all love, goodness, beauty, pleasure, and joy. Because if Jesus is not fully God, he cannot save you He cannot save you as his people from your sins because at the end of the day, a mere man cannot bear the full wrath of God on behalf of your sins and restore you back to the God who made you to glorify and enjoy forever. And so Athanasius then was willing to go against the world for defending the full divinity of Christ meant contending for the gospel. Therefore, I share all this to illustrate an important point. Everyone in this room right now is a worker of the gospel. Even those listening online who don't believe in the gospel, you all are workers of the gospel. But, the, the, but this then begs a the question. The question is, do you work for the advance of the gospel, or are you a hindrance of the gospel? And like I said, this is not necessarily a situation between believers and unbelievers. It's unfortunately a reality within the church itself. Because of sin, Various people rise in the church to not only cause division amongst God's people, but work against the advance of God's kingdom. So you can either be like Athanasius, who faithfully worked to advance the gospel out of selfless love, or you can be disillusioned by selfish motives, like those who persecuted Athanasius, that he actually become a hindrance to the gospel itself. Likewise, the Apostle John writes at the end of the first century amidst a similar situation where faithful believers are working together to advance the gospel. Others are working against it. And so John writes this short letter as a solution to help the church keep its head on mission of making disciples of all the nations. Therefore, the main point of third John is that you are fellow workers of the gospel. You are fellow workers of the gospel. But what does it take What does it look like when Christians work together for the gospel? And John answers this question by presenting three marks. Three marks of what fellow Christians look like as faithful workers of the gospel. And so let's begin by looking at the first mark in the text this evening, which is the mark of walking in truth. The mark of walking in truth. So look at verse 1 in your Bibles. John begins his letter saying, The elder, to my dear friend Gaius whom I love in truth. And although 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible or in the New Testament, it's still a small gem shining with practical advice for Christian living. And also, it follows the common Greco-Roman style of letters in the first century. In other words, it contains three parts. The greeting, the body, and the conclusion. And so verse 1 here begins the greeting of the letter. And yet you must first understand why it's written before you can apply its message to your life. So let's begin by asking an important question. Who is the elder? Is this an old man? Who, who, who's it referring to here? And Christians throughout church history, alongside the New Testament itself, they all virtually agree that the elder is none other than the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why? Why? well, there's a very close connection regarding the grammar, content, style between the Gospel of John and these collection of letters by John. And since the Apostle John is the undoubted author of the Gospel of John, the logical conclusion is that he wrote the three letters of John too. And so the elder in 3 John is the Apostle John. And it's unclear why he chooses to refer to himself with this title elder. He does the exact same thing in 2 John. Yet, it's a reference at least that John... Is a pastor. And as a pastor, he possesses spiritual oversight for the churches in Ephesus or in modern day Turkey that he is writing to in these three letters. His warm pastoral affection makes this fact evident in 3 John. And so, John the Elder, he is the author of the letter this evening. And if you look again at verse 1, you see that he wrote it to his dear friend Gai- Gaius, whom he loves in the truth. And it's difficult to know who this Gaius is exactly, because it was a popular name in John's time. Yet, it is clear that he is a golly example. A golly example of of what what does it look like to work to advance the gospel. As a result, John begins by calling Gaius his dear friend. Gaius is not just an acquaintance, instead he is a beloved dear friend. And this again captures the warm affection John expresses throughout this letter. John further expresses this affection by saying, "'Whom I love in the truth.'" For John to say that he loves guys in the truth is to say that he loves them in a way that is consistent with the gospel. And proof that someone has been transformed by the truth of the gospel is that they are walking in this new sense of love toward others. Why? Well, since God first loved his people through the gospel— Christians then, you and I, brothers and sisters, we are called to love others in the same way. And I'm going to return to this theme later on. In the meantime, how does John express his love to Gaius in a way consistent with the gospel? Look at verse 2 in your Bible. John writes these words. Dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health just as your whole life is going well. And so John again refers to guys as his dear friend. And this affection is followed by a simple prayer. And so when John prays for guys to be prospering in every way and are in good health, he is just expressing his love and concern for his overall well-being. And to help you better understand this, look at that phrase, whole life. Whole life. In the Greek, this word is used a couple ways. One is just to use to describe the human body physically or it could be used to describe the human soul. And in context of verse 2, it has the latter meaning here in mind. That, and this is why some translations, like the English Standard Version, it has the word soul, because it could refer to that as well. And so when John's praying for Guy's material well-being, it's in light of his spiritual well-being. Just as Gaius is healthy spiritually, John prays for him to be healthy physically. And you're going to see in the next few verses how John knows Gaius is healthy spiritually. And yet, just allow this to sink in for a moment. That John prays for Gaius' whole life, his overall well-being. Because as Christians, you should not only be concerned with one part of each other's well-being, but all of it, right? And what a great way to love your fellow believers by praying concerning their whole being And to kind of help illustrate this importance Think about the Lord's Prayer, the famous words of Jesus, right, when he says these words. Part of the Lord's Prayer is when he says, give us today our daily bread, right? And when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he's reminding them here to pray for bread. And this is significant because your Father in heaven, he knows you all have physical needs. He knows that you are weak physically and spiritually, He knows you will go through hard times financially, that you will experience anxieties of of, of the daily necessities. That can become very overwhelming. And of course, your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins. And yet, Jesus makes it clear that it's never wrong to pray for physical needs. Why? Because you are contingent beings dependent upon the creator God for your existence. And since every good and perfect gift comes from him, He graciously gives you what you need as your loving father when you humbly depend upon him through prayer. Therefore, pray for one another, loved ones. Simple as that. Pray for one another and never say that you will pray for someone to only never do it later on. Instead, make it a habit to be quick to pray at that very moment and every moment of your lives, which in the long run, it just cultivates this habit of praying without ceasing always depending upon God and not on your own strength alone. This is what John does here, leading to how he knows guys is healthy spiritually. And so look at your Bibles in verse three then. John writes, continuing, for I was very glad when fellow workers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you are walking in the truth. And so John knows Gaius is doing well spiritually because other believers testify that he's walking in the truth. And this happens when these fellow believers came to John to testify about it, to talk about it, to chat it up. And I'm going to further explain the identity of these fellow believers later in verse 5. But what what I can say now is that they testify to Gaius' fidelity to the truth. And John clarifies this phrase when he says how Gaius is walking in truth truth. And this right here, loved ones, is an important truth. As John mentions earlier in verse 1, the truth here captures the facts consistent with the gospel. And to kind of help illustrate what truth really is, consider what Jesus says of himself in, in a famous passage, John fourteen six. He says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words of Christ. And as the God-man Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, he is the only way to salvation. Why? Because he is the only one who can forgive you for your cosmic treason against the holy God in heaven. And as as the truth, Jesus is the standard of what is right and wrong. Because he is the perfect essence of truth itself. All that to say, Jesus is life as well because he offers salvation to all who repent of their sins, to all who repent of their sins and believe in him by faith as Lord and Savior. As the prophet Isaiah says, hundreds of years before Christ even came onto the scene, he says that Jesus was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. That's what Christ did to save his people from our sins as the way, the truth, and the life. Also the Apostle Paul, he says later to to the Corinthian church that God made Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when Jesus, the man of sorrows, is on the cross, he bore the full wrath of God as the sinless son of God. For who? To all those who call upon him in faith. Why? Because of his great love for you. How? By grace, the gift of God, through Christ alone. As a result, those who have been set free from death are no longer um, living for sin, but now live for the risen King Jesus, who again is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what it means then when fellow believers testify to John regarding Gaius' fidelity to the truth it 's not because he confesses the truth of the gospel, but he is actually practically living it out as a life transformed by the very truth of the gospel itself and so he 's not just talking about sound doctrine right he 's not just talking to talk, but he 's actually walking the walk he is actually living out sound doctrine and this picture of walking it 's a really good picture because in verse three, that verb walking it 's expressing this continuous Action. It's not that that, that guy just walks and he stops. No, it's a continuous action moving forward. Guys is continuously living out the gospel, and you're going to see shortly how guys is walking in the truth. But the point is that Christians, you, brothers and sisters, you are never characterized by a mere confession of faith alone. Just because you confess a particular confession, creed, or statement of faith, which, by the way, if you're a member at Sovereign Way, you have all confessed um the statement of faith that we have that we have covenanted together as believers just because you say that which is great that does not necessarily mean you are a born again christian why i'm not saying that you must never confess sound doctrine don't misunderstand me here a proper understanding of god however is necessary to begin with proper worship of him that's why we must start again with right doctrine but that should it end there it should lead to worship of god Right understanding of God leads to our right worship of God. And what I'm saying is that as Christians, you are not primarily known by what you confess. Instead, when we take the words of Jesus, what does he say? He says that you are known by not only what you say, but how you live. Consider this famous illustration in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. He says here that a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes pick, uh, picked from a bramber bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. And so Jesus' point is that a good tree does not produce bad fruit, and a bad tree does not produce good fruit. It's just against nature. It's unnatural. Similarly, a person receiving a new heart through the gospel is not marked by sin anymore. They are born again. And this does not mean sinless perfection, you're never going to sin. That doesn't happen until, until you're glorified at Christ's second coming. And yet, the believer is no longer walking enslaved to sin, for they are walking in the truth by producing good fruit, living like Christ, doing the things that are glorifying to him. And yet, on the other hand, the one whose heart is still dead due to sin is not marked by good fruit. They are spiritually dead, the scriptures say. They still need to be born again, and until they experience the sweet grace of salvation through the Savior and receive a new heart from the Spirit, they will remain broken in sin. In other words, the fruit a person produces is indicative of whether the gospel has transformed their heart or not. And this is important to keep in mind, because when you think about our culture, One of the dogmas of modern America is the expectation of allowing to be your true, authentic self. And how do people go about doing that? Well, by being true to how you feel on the inside, according to your own emotions. Whether it's your sexuality, career, spouse, friends, family, school, hobbies, or whatever, the only way you can find true meaning and satisfaction in this life, according to the culture, is discovering your true identity on the inside. And yet... What does 3 John have to say? What does the scriptures have to say? And what we see in 3 John is that it teaches that there is not only another way, but there is a far better way to discover your true authentic self. Instead of finding it in yourself, as the culture encourages you to do, the Bible says you can only find it in God. Why? Well, whether you agree with me or not, just mark my words. Mark my words because you will become a very broken You will become a very miserable individual if you place your identity in anything besides the God of the Bible because you were not made for anything in this world. Instead, you were made for God. As the North African theologian Augustine, another old dead guy, once said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. And the good news is that you can find rest for your hearts by believing in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. It's only by placing your identity in Christ by faith alone as a child of the living God that you will reach your true, authentic self. This is why Guy's fidelity to the truth is known, because he lives a life filled with fruit so that others can authenticate that his faith in Christ is true. That is why it's important, loved ones, that you practice what you believe. For if you truly believe the things you confess, then you must walk in accordance to it, because it's dangerous. It is dangerous when Christians merely confess to believe in Jesus as Savior, but their life is not marked by walking unto him as Lord. Because if you don't live in complete submission to His sovereign lordship, regardless of what you believe, you are most likely, I would argue, not even a Christian. You're not saved. Consider what John says in one of his other letters, in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. He says here that everyone who commits sin habitually practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Again, his point is that it's not if you struggle with sin, you're not a Christian at all. We still struggle with sin as born again believers. What John is getting at is that if your life is characterized by habitually living in sin, that you have no desire to get rid of it, like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. This reveals that you're not walking in the truth. Because true believers, although they will still struggle with sin, are so bothered by it that they will be continually, each and every single day, by killing it. By killing his sin, putting it off, repenting of her sins, and walking in accordance to Christ. And so whoever, so wherever you are this evening, whether you are a believer struggling with sin or an unbeliever, whatever, take heart. Because as one Puritan writer once says, there is more mercy in Christ than the sin in you. So that's something to find great encouragement, especially as I talk about the gospel later tonight. Because it's only when you embrace the Savior in truth will you experience true joy in him. As a result, upon hearing that Gaius is walking in the truth from other believers, look at what John says in verse 4. He says these words that, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. Again, you see John's warm affection towards Gaius when he calls him his own child, for he is walking in the truth. And whether or not this means Gaius is saved under John's ministry, we just don't know that detail. It does point to a reality of a pastor, a pastor, rejoicing upon hearing the news that one of his sheep is walking in the truth. And John is right to feel joy, for it is evident that God is faithfully doing a work in Gaius. So likewise, you ought to praise God and rejoice when you see fellow brothers and sisters growing in Christ-like holiness, loved ones. Because you know why? Because when you see that, especially here at this church or wherever you go, You are witnessing the sanctification of another believer, a believer becoming like Christ. And when you see that, loved ones, you are seeing God's faithfulness, that God is still working, God is still moving, just in that case, in the work of that believer to become more like Jesus. And so, loved ones, a couple questions for reflection. Is your life marked by walking in the truth, in the truth of the gospel? Or are you known for not walking in the truth? Would your co-workers know you're a Christian or would they know that you are a Christian? And if not, then ask God to help you to see where do you need to grow? How do you need to fill your heart with God's word so that you may filter out the world and replace it with Christ who is far more greater? Surround yourself with people perhaps who you can trust at church who are willing to walk alongside you so that you're both pursuing a life worthy of the gospel. Beloved, I pray that you just have a better understanding, if not reminders, of how this first mark of walking in the truth is essential to what faithful believers look like as fellow workers of the gospel. Because if not, then how can you or I say that we have been saved by the truth of the gospel? And this leads to the second mark of what walking in the truth looks like for the Christian. And it's the mark of hospitable love. The mark of hospitable love. So look at your Bible's loved ones, in verse 5. John now begins the body, the, the, the main meat of the letter. He says, Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. And so John addresses guys again as a dear friend. And this is appropriate because he is going to encourage him on how he has been walking in the truth. And John's going to explain in verse 5 what Guys is doing exactly with these fellow brothers and sisters. But, but until I clarify that detail, what you, you can't know is that he is acting in a way defined by faithfulness. Guys is faithful here. And this is clear because Guys does so, especially when they are strangers. But that then begs a the question what does Paul mean by this? Who are these strangers? Well, you find clarity in the next verse. Look at what he says in verse 6. He writes, "They have testified to your love before the church. you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God." And so there are a few things to keep in mind here. First, these strange believers are the same ones who testify about Gaius walking in the truth earlier in verse three. And so in verse six, you, you begin to see why they said this, for he showed them for he showed them love before the church. Which church? Well, it seems that these believers are sent wherever John is staying. Why? Well, since they experienced Guy's love, they then went to go tell John about it. And so where John seems to be at one church, Gaius is at another. And that makes sense because these would have been churches under John's pastoral leadership. And all this, and all this points to what John says in the second part of verse 6. He writes to Guys, you will do well. Too well, guys, to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And now, look closely at that language of the verse. The, that that phrase to send them on their journey—that's actually a technical term in the Greek for missionary support in the early church. This language is seen all throughout the Book of Acts, and a perfect example of how this word is used is when the Apostle Paul asks the Roman Church to support him in sending him for missions to Spain. He writes in Romans 15, 24 that whenever I've traveled to Spain, I hope to see you when I pass through to be assisted by you for my journey there. Therefore, Gaius, he is walking in the truth according to John because he receives these Christian strangers. He receives these Christian missionaries. And this is why John says to Gaius, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For he trusts him to support them financially. And this leads to an essential biblical concept known as hospitality. Because when these Christian missionaries are testifying about Gaius' love to John, they're just really testifying how hospitable Gaius was. How? Well, in the Mediterranean world, that's the setting of where the New Testament takes place. Hospitality, what is it? Hospitality is really just the process where an outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. Hospitality is showing love to a stranger so that they're no longer a stranger but your welcomed guest. And furthermore hospitality is not something that a person just provides for family, friends, people that you know, but especially to strangers. That's what makes it hospitality. And the reason why this is necessary, at least in this time, because travelers were at the mercy of those who would receive and provide for their physical well-being. Just think of shelter, lodging, food, water, sleeping quarters, and directions on their journey onward. Daily necessities, right? Because if, if these strangers did not receive such hospitality, then they could be left fatally destitute, being left to die, or they would have to be forced back to go on their journey. And so when Gaius receives these missionaries, they are initially strangers until he shows them hospitality. And not only does he accept them as mere guests, but he receives them as beloved believers in Christ. And only is Gaius truly expressing love for his neighbor here, but he is truly loving his fellow Christian as well. It's God's hospitable love that allows the work of the gospel to advance forward. Therefore, as Christians, we should always be showing loving hospitality, especially toward fellow believers who are on the mission for the Great Commission. In other words, you should always be in support of fellow believers. But why? Why? Well, John gives three reasons, actually, in verses 7 to 8. John writes to guys that he ought to support these missionaries, which are principles for us today, loved ones, because they set out for the sake of the name, in verse 7. Accepting nothing from pagans, therefore we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. And so the first reason, I said there's three, the first reason is that these missionaries, they set out for the sake of the name. And that verb setting out, is again, missional language here. That's the focus. It captures the sense that these missionaries, they're being sent out by a sending church. That's the pattern you see in the book of Acts. It's churches that send missionaries, never self appointed missionaries. But what's intriguing is, that the, is the motivation of these missionaries. Why did they go out to preach the gospel? Well, John says they went out for the sake of the name. What name? the only name under heaven that not only saves, but is worthy to praise. And that name is Jesus Christ. And this is profound because the reason these missionaries are going out is not merely to advance the gospel, as important as that is, they are going out to spread the gospel for God's glory. That is their motivation. In other words, they're so concerned with God's glory that they cannot stand anymore people perishing without knowing Jesus or, any, or, or just people living without knowing him in true worship. They are so concerned with the belittling of God's glory that they're motivated to make his name known among the nations. As American pastor John Piper, he says some famous words regarding this reality. He says that when it comes to missions, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And he finishes when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God. Missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. That's the reason why any missionary I know has personally gone out to, to the world to make disciples, for the glory of God alone. And so to make the gospel then, and, and this might rub some of you the wrong way, but, but hear me out. It's Even if we make the gospel more ultimate than God's glory, you are actually making an idol out of the gospel. And I'm not saying for you to stop sharing your faith to reach lost, but remember, when we share the gospel, it's only a means to an end, which that end is true worship the gospel sharing the gospel itself is not the end itself because the goal of ones is to reach every nation starting in our own hometown starting here in the high desert with the gospel so that many people will rejoice and be glad that king jesus is lord and savior that's the first reason why you should support missions for the sake of the name for the sake of god's glory alone and yet there's two more reasons And the second one is that John encourages Gaius to support these missionaries because they didn't receive any help from pagans. And now some English translations might say Gentiles, but with the word pagan or Gentile, what this is ultimately expressing is that these missionaries, they didn't want to receive report from unbelievers. And that's because they did not want unbelievers to assume that they were just greedy people, um, greedy people. And in that day, you had a bunch of traveling teachers who was all about the money, right? They didn't want to be confused with that. Instead, they did not want to bring any reproach to the name of Christ. And so they did not accept support from unbelievers. Now, that's not to say that these missionaries or any today could never accept help from a willing unbeliever Instead, it was their policy to not seek the support of unbelievers except from believing churches. Those were the people that they went to to find help. Why? Because God expects the church to not only raise up missionaries, but to even support missionaries as well. For the spreading of the gospel, all to God's glory alone. And this leads me to the final reason why John encourages guys to support these missionaries. John writes, Therefore, In light of these two reasons, you ought to support such people. We ought to support such people so that we can be co workers with the truth. And so, the final reason you are to support missions is so that you will become a fellow worker with the truth, a co worker of the gospel. And I'm not sure if you realize it or not, but verses 6 to 8 here, sometimes at this church we like to throw around be goer, you're either a goer or a sender. This is where where the idea comes from. It is verses 6 to 8 in 3 John where this idea of senders or goers comes from in the Bible. And what I mean by that is that not everyone is called to be a goer to the nations as a missionary. Not everyone is called to do that. Yet, you are all called to be world Christians by at least supporting missionary work as senders. Therefore, with that in mind, and especially since we are in the Christmas season, I just want to share of a special opportunity that Sovereign Way has every Christmas season. It's an opportunity for you and I, church, to be fellow workers of the gospel in supporting global missions, or as we usually call it, the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering this year. And what that's all about is that it was named after a 19th century Southern Baptist missionary sent to China. She was a a lady named Lottie Moon, and what I can tell you about her, that she witnessed the world's greatest problem firsthand, and this greatest problem still exists today, and that problem is summarized in one word, lostness. That is the world's greatest problem. And, 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 and because of that, the world's greatest problem is not just political insecurity. It's not even sexual promiscuity or financial anxiety. These are great problems, and yet humanity's greatest problem is the inability to repent or be restored back to God in worship. And so while Lottie Moon was a missionary, she, con- she constantly asked for prayer, she constantly asked for financial report to not only send missionaries, but to also sustain missionaries on the field so that they can keep preaching the gospel and bringing people to faith to God for His glory alone. Even as Jesus says, right? He says that throughout the Gospels that the harvest of souls is ready, but the laborers are few. So, what does Jesus say? You better be praying for workers of the harvest. And so, loved ones, Probably next Sunday, either Steve or I will discuss more on the Lottie Moon Christmas offering um, next Sunday morning. And yet, I want to challenge you today to prepare your hearts as Lottie Moon did so long ago. Are you concerned about the glory of God? Do you want Christ to return and establish perfect justice, equity, and peace in this broken and chaotic world? Do you long for the day when you will find eternal rest in God, the God who we're made to worship face to face? If you are, then pray. Pray that God would raise up missionaries and evangelists, even at this very church, maybe even in this very room, so that you and I can get the mission done together. To set us, so with that in mind set aside finances this month limit your trips to limit limit your trips to Starbucks if you have to this month just for a month right so that when the church is ready to give at the end of this month to the and Christmas offering that we are being partakers of the gospel and, and the cool thing about this offering is that the hundred percent of the gifts receive all the money it, it doesn't go to you know to some office you know out of state or whatever it doesn't go to the church it goes directly to missions to, mi- to missionaries on the field to support them and to missionaries who are being trained up here in the states right now it will go to them so that they can be sent and be sustained so that they can preach the gospel and make disciples of all the nations and so loved ones we have a phenomenal opportunity to play our part as senders of the gospel and with that in mind then is not christ worthy then to be to to be declared of all the nations his name is the only name under heaven that can bring ruined sinners to experience redemption through the great god and savior jesus And so loved ones and anyone listening online, let's serve God for the sake of his name and get God's mission done. According to the International Missions Board, here's some frightening statistics that we sometimes throw and and we should share. 59%, 59% of the world today is considered unreached, meaning that Jesus is not known or named of about 4.5 billion people today today. And an even more devastating reality is that about 160,000 people every day are dying daily without Christ. And so before the clock rings midnight, 160,000 people today around the world are going to be spending an eternity in hell. And that's on us, church. And so the, so, so the cost is high. The mission is essential. For the sake of the name, loved ones, Let's be faithful like Gaius. Let's work to spread the gospel, starting here in Asperia. Whether as senders or goers, let's be faithful to make Christ's name known on this earth. Let's preach and live a life worthy of the gospel daily. Because I know you all know lost people, family members, coworkers, friends, I do. The best thing you can do, the best thing that I can do, is to not only love them, but love them by sharing the good news of Jesus with them. That is the best way that you can share in love with them. Because Christ himself says that he will not return to restore this broken world to paradise that it once was until the gospel is reached to all the nations. So don't you want that? Don't you want Christ to return? Beloved, let's stop living for this world then. We cannot live for this world. Rather, we must live for the world to come as God's ambassadors of the everlasting kingdom So walk in the truth by lovingly showing hospitality towards other believers, especially when it's in support to those who go to the nations for the sake of God's glory. And so before I turn to the final mark, however, though, with all that in mind, there's another thing that we need to consider. There's actually a person that you need to look and understand so that you will not become a hindrance to the gospel, but that you become workers of the gospel who advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Who is this person? Look at verse 9 in your Bibles. John writes these words that I, write, I, I, I wrote something to the church, but a guy named Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. And so John writes in the first eight verses of this letter how Gaius walks in the truth by showing hospitable love towards fellow missionaries. Now, you are going to witness someone unpleasant, someone not like Gaius. You're going to witness a guy named Diotrephes. And there's little information about Diotrephes apart from 3 John. In the first century, he had a very unusual name. I guess it's still an unusual name today. I don't know what parent would name their child Diotrephes. But yet the name means nurtured by Zeus, which was a name that was connected to nobility. In other words, his name bled with privilege. And whether or not that explains Diotrephes' poor attitude here in verses 9 to 10 You just don't want to be like him. This is a guy you do not want to follow. You do not want to imitate this guy. Why? Well, John mentioned at the beginning of verse 9 that he wrote something, which was a letter just lost to antiquity, to Diotrephes' church, and yet he rejected it, which John further explains that he also did not receive our authority. And what that means is that Diotrephes, he rejects John's God-given authority as an apostle alongside his workers like Gaius and the missionaries all of the above who are working to, uh, to the advance of the gospel. And John illustrates Diotrephes' motivation as the type of person who loves to be first place among them. That's the type of guy Diotrephes is, and that's how John summarized Diotrephes: someone who loved to be first place. In other words, Diotrephes he loves power. He has no respect of authority towards others because he ultimately loves himself more than others. In other words, he's a very selfish man. And this bleeds into what John further says about him in verse 10. Look there where he says, this is why. If I come, I will remind Diotrephes Diotrephes, of his works he is doing. Slanderneth with malicious words, and he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. So since Diotrephes rejects John's authority, he is going to pay him a visit by confronting him regarding all the evil he is doing. And although John doesn't know when he will come, just whenever he gets the chance, it's still a visit that he must do to discipline him for his evil works. But what are they? Well, John lists four things in verse 10, saying that Diotrephes is slandering us with malicious words. He is not satisfied with that and only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. And so the first thing that, that, that John says about Diotrephes is that he slanders John. He slanders John and those like guys and these missionaries who are faithful in advancing the gospel. And the idea of in here is just this idea of just speaking nonsense, speaking lies. And when combined with the idea of malicious words, you can say that Diotrephes is just badmouthing mouthing those who are just faithfully working to spread the gospel, to share their faith wherever they may go. In other words, you can say that Diotrephes was the original discernment blogger who knows what he would have done if he had Twitter, right? Nonetheless, if that wasn't bad enough, as John says he is not satisfied in using his tongue to, bel- to belittle fellow believers, he says, secondly, that he is refusing to welcome fellow believers. Because unlike Gaius, who receives Christian missionaries with hospitality, Diotrephes rejects them instead of demonstrating hospitable love he demonstrates selfish hatred and if and, and if that is not the end of it, it it just gets worse when john says at the end of verse 10 that he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church so not only does Diotrephes re- refuses to receive these fellow missionaries but he stops those who try to do so in his congregation and john even even writes that he even expels them from his church and now it's not clear if this expulsion from the church is an official action of excommunication, kicking him out of the church. But the, that, but the fact that Diotrephes succeeds in doing so demonstrates that he not only possesses authority, maybe he was a leader or a pastor at a church, but he's abusing his authority. Again, this is someone you do not want to follow, someone you do not want to imitate. So nonetheless, it's, it's at least clear that in compared to Gaius, Theotrophes, he's a hindrance to the gospel. Instead of loving those who are going out for the sake of the name, Theotrophes shows hatred towards them by loving himself. Instead of exalting the one name that deserves to be glorified alone, he is only concerned in glorifying his own name. And so you have two different characters here. Gaius, who is defined by love for others, and Theotrophes, who is defined by love for himself. Where the former puts others first, the latter puts himself first. Where the man of good repute works for the advance of the gospel, the man of ill repute works as a hindrance of the gospel. And yet, the danger for you to be like a diotrephes is closer than you may think, loved ones, even including myself. Because there's always the possibility that you and I can behave like diotrephes. You know why? Because we still have the ability to sin, we still have sin in our lives. All the believers are redeemed by the power of sin. You have not been fully free from the ability to not sin. Again, that doesn't cease until Christ returns to make all things new. That is why it is so important that you must renew your mind through God's word daily so that that your heart matches with Christ's hearts and not the world's. This is why you must pray daily so that you are reminded of your dependence upon the sovereign Lord and not yourself. And now if there's any unbelievers, unbelievers listening to me online... You will probably agree with me that, yeah, there's more Diotrephes than Gaiuses in the American church today, and when you consider the moral crisis of pastors due to maybe financial infidelity, sexual morality, which is just atrocious in our country, or maybe just the overall pious hypocrisy of Christians, it's, is it no wonder then that the secular American culture has every reason to judge Christianity as really no better than the world? And I just want to say that if there is anyone listening who struggles with this unfortunate reality, I just want to reassure you that God will hold every Christian accountable, as he does with every sinner in the world, based on what they do. And yet, I don't want anyone here to think that just because the church is filled with hypocrites, or it has its problems, that deconstructing your faith, or just leaving the church, is the answer. Because I can assure each and every one of you, that is not the answer. Because you're not going to find more joy if you jettison Christianity whether you grew up in a church or not. Instead, I challenge you. I challenge you to, to, to just consider one person. Consider not, maybe not the followers of Christianity because I know we have our problems. But if anything, follow the one who is the essence of Christianity. Jesus, the Messiah. Because I can guarantee you that when you really consider the Christ of Christianity, the Christ in the Gospels you will meet perhaps the most authentic human being, the one who is fully God and fully man. And not only did Jesus disagree with people just to disagree with people, but he did so for their own good. He always did so by speaking truth and love. He never broke a bruised reed or put out a smoldering, flickering wick. God shows his love for you that while you were still in sin, Christ died for you on the cross if you believe in him by faith. And, so, and I know that some, of, some people who may listen to this will not agree. Some of you will not agree with me as I make these statements at this moment because you don't fully understand Christianity. Some of it's too hard. And yet, before anyone denies Christianity, make sure you know who you're denying. Make sure that you know who Christ is before you deny him. Because you can say that, oh, he's a liar. and eh, he was just crazy. and eh, he never existed. He's a mere myth. And yet, you risk the fact of denying who he actually is the resurrected Lord if you fail to know who he truly is. And just to kind of illustrate this significant reality, consider with me a famous parable about a fence. This is something that a British writer, G.K. Chesterton, once said. He said that, imagine if you have a fence and and you're building this road, you keep building this road and you're trying to build this nice road, and then you come to a fence. You have no idea why it's there, but then that leads to a question. Do you stop to try to figure out why the fence is there um, before you keep building the road? Or like, eh, doesn't matter. Get rid of the fence and just keep building your road. What's the point of this illustration? Well, Chesterton was getting at the point that before you remove the fence, you should first do your research. Why is the fence there? Because if you just assume like, eh, it's not it's not a big problem and you remove it, you risk the danger that, hey, there might, there might be a huge significant reason why this fence is here. And if I remove it, then I might be doing more damage to myself than good. And so, and likewise then, if you, if anyone here removes the cross from your life if you remove the cross of christ in your life without first understanding who christ of the gospels are you risk denying not only the only path to eternal life from your sins but you also risk losing the only way to find love to find goodness to find beauty pleasure joy in in the god who can only grant you these things and that is only in king jesus And so I know it's a horrible reality that the church in America is not marked by love for truth that treats others as fellow image bearers, especially because Christ commands this in John 13 that you ought to love one another. We are to love one another, loved ones. Just as Christ has loved us, we are to love one another because Jesus says by this everyone will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. And so loved ones, let your life be defined by Christ-like love. How can he say that you have experienced God's love or that you love God if you treat others with disrespect? Maybe like a theotrophies. How can the world take your message seriously if one thing that ought to mark you as a Christian is missing? Which is love. Until you're defined by your love for one another, your witness to the world will be empty. Until you struggle with all your effort to love one another as Christ has first loved you, that he died for you, you will think more about yourselves rather than others first. And that is really the heart of why you see so much fighting amongst the people of God. Because people just love themselves first rather than others. And so if there's anyone here who is estranged with one another due to senseless sense of arguing, I encourage you, make it right as soon as possible by lovingly seeking each other's forgiveness this day. If your life has been marked by such hate, the hate of the atrophies, repent of it. Repent of it right now. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And allow the love of God to consume you. Because unless you allow yourselves to be consumed by God's love, you will never be able to truly love others. And this leads me to the third and final mark of what faithful believers look like as fellow workers of the gospel, which is the mark of godly obedience. The mark of godly obedience. And so look at verse 11 in your Bibles. John writes, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. And so not only do you see John refer to guys as a dear friend for the last time in his letter, but you arrive at the one primary command in the entire letter, and it's to not imitate what is evil. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Why does John say this? Well, because the one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. In other words, John says to guys, do not, if it, do not imitate the evil deatrophies. Instead, continue to imitate what is good. And he then even says further in verse 12 that everyone speaks well of Demetrius, this other guy, this other chap, even the truth itself. And we also speak well of him, and he you know that our testimony is true. And even just by him mentioning this guy Demetrius, again, we don't know who he is exactly, he just brings him up because he is an example of another guy doing good. Why? Because all the Christians, John, even the truth of the gospel, testify about it. They authenticate that he is a true believer. And, and John may have also mentioned Demetrius here because he is not only maybe the carrier of the letter who actually delivered it to Gaius, but perhaps he is also a fellow missionary too. And so since Theotrophes' character is, is, is known by a lack of hospitable love towards Christian missionaries... John is calling Gaius. He is calling Gaius to not imitate his bad example, but to keep doing what is good, to keep showing hospitable love, even to believers like Demetrius. Because anyone who continually does good, they are of God. They are born again. And yet if a person continually lives a lifestyle of evil, it's an indication that you have not seen God with the eyes of faith. You are an unbeliever. And before I close, let me just tell you a little bit about a person who continually did good despite great evil coming upon him. The one person that was the only person to have never sinned, and yet the greatest evil befell him. And to Christians, we know this guy as Jesus Christ, right? that when that Jesus Christ, God sent Jesus into the world 2,000 years ago. This is why we celebrate Christmas, the incarnation, the first advent, the birth of our Lord and Savior, King Jesus. He came into the world not just to come into the world to add humanity to himself, but he had a mission because since the beginning of time when God made everything, he made everything perfectly good, even humanity. And yet when there was a time when humanity they rebelled against God and brought sin and death into the world and the consequence of such sinning is death and the reason why we know such sin and wickedness does exist because we've all experienced brokenness in some way shape or form and people in our culture around the world throughout history I don't care who you are we all know this brokenness exists because of our sinful state before God and you try to do all these things to alleviate this brokenness maybe trying to alleviate it with drugs sex alcohol or maybe running to good things like, oh, maybe if I get a, the, the perfect marriage or the perfect education or the dream career, then everything will be fine. And yet, it only leads to more brokenness because it doesn't take care of humanity's greatest problem. The fact that because all of humanity has sinned against God, you are condemned to go to the internal fires of hell because you have committed cosmic treason against God. God. that's the bad news. That's what we all deserve because we have all sinned against the creator God who made us to worship him and yet we have chosen to do our own thing and yet this is where the good news comes in. God sent forth his son to be born under the law, to be born of the virgin Mary so that if you believe in him by faith alone, because Jesus, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned and when he died on that cross, he died for sinners like you and me so that if you believe in him by faith, repent of your sins and follow him, you will be saved. Because all your sins, all your all your failures, everything that you've sinned against God was placed into Christ's account. And Christ dies in your place on the cross by bearing the full wrath of God on your place as a substitute, and he pays your sin debt in full. And in exchange, he gives you his perfect righteousness. Not that you earned it, not that you could have ever received it, but you but you received it as a gift, not by your good works but by your faith in King Jesus. And as a result, you are not only forgiven of your sins, but you're adopted into God's family as a son and daughter so that you can live for Jesus. You can live for him and find true peace and joy not only in this life now, but also in the life to come. And we know that this is true because the Bible and historical reliable eyewitness account tells us that Christ not only died and was buried, but three days later rose again from the grave. So there's anyone here online who doesn't truly believe in the gospel, I exhort you, repent of your sins and call upon the Lord Christ Jesus by faith alone because before you can do that, you will remain in sin. You will remain dead and, and, and it w- which will keep leading to further brokenness in your life until you experience eternal damnation in hell because you sinned against God. You can only find forgiveness and peace in Jesus. I exhort you, repent and believe in this Jesus today. And so loved ones, and out of all of this then, be careful who you imitate. And I'm even especially thinking about some of the students at this church, the college students, the, the high school students, because those who you tend to look up to, whether it be in pop culture, sports, could be friends, teachers, politics, co-workers, family, you name it, these are people that could ultimately influence you and shape the way that you think. And so, my little brothers and sisters, be careful not to follow the evil examples of the world. Instead, look to those who at least Follow Christ. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. And if anything, look to Christ and imitate him. You are called to imitate him in holiness. And so all of us, whether you're the young students in this generation or those who've been walking in the faith for a long time, all of us should have our lives marked by walking in truth, accompanied by Christ-like love, leading to godly obedience all the days of your life. And although the rest of the letter is the conclusion, it's just a perfect picture of the unity of, between John and Gaius that they share together as fellow believers who have worked together and who work together for the gospel. And I'll close off with these verses. Verses 13 to 15, I have many things to write to you, but I want to, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, face to face, peace to you. Peace to you, or Shalom to you. The friends send you greetings, greet the friends by name. And so third John, it succinctly summarizes that you are all fellow workers of the gospel. Contending for the gospel, it's never easy, especially when you do it alone. Yet you are stronger when you work alongside your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of the name. So live up these three marks of walking in the truth of the gospel, demonstrating hospitable love and being obedient to God's word, because you are all called to be faithful in sharing the gospel in the context of your moment-by-moment lives. Whether you go to the nations or stay home to support missions, both roles are needed. Just like Athanasius and Gaius, they work to advance the gospel. And yet there will always be people, people like Diotrophes, even in the church, who will be a hindrance to such kingdom work. and So loved ones, be faithful. Be faithful as you work together for the gospel. You and I, we have much work to do in reaching this high desert with the gospel. And yet, be faithful with where the Lord has you in life. Depend upon not your own strength, depend upon the Spirit, for His grace is sufficient in strengthening you to love your neighbor, and most importantly, God. Because not only will you be a kingdom witness for the sake of Christ, but the world will have a reason to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, has added humanity to Himself to redeem a people from all the nations back to Himself in worship. Let's pray, loved ones. Lord God, we thank You for this.